Nearly every Christian goes through seasons of doubt. Sometimes we call this deconstruction. It's a time when you question what you believe, wonder whether or not the faith that you've had might stay with you going forward. And if you've never experienced deconstruction, you probably know someone who has. And Christians going through deconstruction can feel lonely, anxious, and depressed. You feel lonely because you don't know who to talk to about your questions. You feel anxious about your faith because it's been a great source of strength and comfort, but seems to have left for a while. And you can feel depressed because you're grieving the loss of the simple faith you once enjoyed. Well, one of the things that we've tried to do at All Souls is provide a hospitable space for people that are working through deconstruction. And we want to be a church where any question can be asked, any doubt expressed, and we want to help you rebuild your faith after those seasons. So tonight we're beginning a four-week series on rebuilding faith, and I have asked two of the people who I know who have thought the most deeply and taught the most effectively on this subject to partner with me in the series. So tonight, Suzanne Stilling will begin the series. Next week, we have a special prayer service led by the shepherding team. Suzanne will be back on the 31st. I will teach, and then Rob will teach on August 7th. So we hope that this series helps you if you're going through deconstruction, and we hope this will help you help others who might be as well. So welcome, Suzanne. Thanks, you all. I'm so happy to be here with you. We're going to get into the scripture, and we are actually going to get into Genesis 32. That prayer Wow, that was so beautiful. And that's so much of what we're going to be talking about. So um, and t before we get there, though, I want to um, talk about a few other things to just be clear. The journey of faith is neither linear nor tidy. And I think sometimes we have the misconception that it's going to be easy or we've been taught that it's going to be easy and clear. And sometimes we end up wandering all over the place and we wonder, are we doing this wrong? Is this real? Am I okay in this? And so um, I've looked into some ways to try to figure out how to put words to this. And I found some with Walter Brueggemann. He's a, he's a modern theologian. And he says, life's flow of faith and maturity, um, hence the water, it sort of goes along similarly to the Old Testament. And when you think of the Old Testament, we're, we're going to be sticking right in the book of Genesis today, but we are going to talk about the entire flow of the whole thing. So we begin with the Torah and history. Um, these three blocks are the major blocks that Brueggemann uses when he thinks this through. So he says, as we move toward maturity, we become more intimate with God as we share experience with him. And it starts similarly to the Torah and history, and we find out who we are. And then we move into the prophets, and we see who we are not 
and we differentiate a little bit, step back and step away. And then ultimately, we end up being like Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus in 1 Corinthians 1.24 is called the wisdom of God. So that's the flow of maturity. And that would be lovely if it was really that simple. However, I don't think it is. We're going to, um, we're going to talk about each one of these blocks very specifically for a moment. So first, Torah and history. Um, this is a big bulk of your Old Testament. Is that good? <laughs> Wait. So um, basically, if you can look at my hands for a minute, picture this as a container. And um, the law becomes a container, and God pours in the identity of his people. Then it was the Hebrew nation. So what he's doing is he's saying, I love you. You are my chosen ones. You are a treasure to me. You are like the apple of my eye. And he pours that identity in. But think about what the law is, that structure. It gives us commandments, things we're supposed to do or not do. Um, it's fairly black and white. This is what a good Hebrew looks like. This is what a good Hebrew does not look like. Um, there's a sense of belonging, a sense of I'm with my people. This is what we do. These are our rituals, our rhythms, our routines, our traditions. This is our authority. And this is how we do life together. So there's a lot of belonging. Um, you also learn certain values like willpower, discipline, a certain level of nationalism, um, success. What is success? Is ambition okay? Um, you learn certain boundaries about who you are as a person and who you are as a community. Things you can and can't do. Lines you don't want to cross. So there's predictability and stability and ritual, order, rules. All of that authority is given in the Torah and the history books. Then you move forward in scripture to the prophets. That's a big old section. You've got majors and minors. They're, um, they're not different in that the majors are more important. They just wrote big, fatter books and then the minors. So what happens there is you realize, wait a minute. This isn't working like they said it would. And in fact, this isn't really working out very well on the inside of me either. And I'm not sure exactly what to do with that. So you have this capacity as you mature for self-critical thinking. And so you start to look and you think, dang, I have this shadow side. That, um, that one song that we sang about the shadowlands and wandering the shadowlands, yeah, we have that. What do we do with our sin? What do we do when someone sins against us? And so even within this beloved community, you start to have offense. And then you have to do the dance of forgiveness. And then you're starting to figure out, well, do I want to reconcile? Because forgiveness and reconciliation are different. And so you start to think, well, I can forgive somebody, but reconciliation is both of us owning our stuff and choosing to walk forward in unity, trying to work on our relationship. Am, am I willing to do that? 
And so you try to figure out those things, offense and forgiveness and reconciliation. And then you also get this bigger picture because you had the sense of nationalism and you had national rituals and national holidays. Well, this is not just personal or ideological. This is also national. And we're failing. And this is where a lot of disillusionment and disappointment and that disgruntled tension and dissonance can, can enter into our faith. And it's really, really upsetting. You start to see your own failure, but then also the failure of the systems that God himself said would probably work because he was the one who put it together. So you have to learn to differentiate, to step back and look and say, okay, the system, as God said it was, was a good system, but the way we live it out, it's crumbling. What do I do with that? Is my faith still valid? Is all this still real? Is it okay for me to feel this tension and this stress about it? Um, And so you have a healthy separation of ideas from others. Jesus did this. He could separate intentionally from Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians and scribes. And he could call them out while still honoring his father. So he, he could live in that tension. So if we look at this, faith and intimacy are supposed to increase over time and shared experience. This is where that can start to feel pretty crumbly. Um, we have the Torah, where you had that integration, that creation of a, of a system. Then we have this, which feels more like disintegration. And that leads us into the next slide, which is more about wisdom. Wisdom literature, meaning Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, those books. And, and as we're going through those, we learn to hold a mystery and paradox and seeming contradiction at the same time. This is when we're thinking, God loves me and I'm suffering both at the same time. And it's very, very hard. It can be very confusing to people. They can say, well, what the heck? I thought he was supposed to love me. Wasn't I the apple of his eye, the treasured, the chosen one? And yet here we're taken to a deeper place. We, we realize that A plus B plus C does not exactly equal a perfect life. And that can be a real crisis of faith. So in this part, we get more um, comfortable with wrestling and resting with God, not having the answers, giving up our control, which can be harder for some of us than for others, and trusting God when we don't see a way. So this one is much more gray. It's more of a both and. Success is defined as intimacy with God. It's not the other things. It's, oh, gosh, you can just see the light emanate from that person. They have that intimacy and they can tell. Um, We begin to become like Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit. So we look like him in wisdom and in mercy. We keep hearing about mercy tonight. Um, we, we view, we have a new lens that we see people through and it's compassion and it's mercy and forgiveness. 
and we extend the gift of closeness to others. We don't have to worry so much about the boundary situation as we used to. We can extend that gift and still be whole and healthy. So while we, can, while we were excluded by shame, here we are included by grace. If we have the seasoned trust, if we have fewer demands on God, if we have this release of control and a deeper rest, we realize that this is not so much our home and we look beyond. So, all right, that's, that's our big three blocks that Walter Brueggemann talks about. Um, I found those to be very helpful. I also found them to be incomplete. I think there's something else that we've got to talk about and this is the main thing of why we're here tonight. So will you please insert a wall, a big red ugly wall in between the first two and the third? And I think what happens with all of God's people is at some point we slam against that wall. We might be blazing through life and really happy and doing well and we might slam up against that wall and we just shatter at the bottom. And there's no sense of how to go through this in a way of faith if you've just been taught happy Christianity. And so a lot of people, they, when, they, when they crumble at the bottom of that wall, they're done. So here's what I've found. If you slam up against the wall, you usually come, bounce back and you end up in one of those two first blocks. The first one, the container for identity, you've got to do it right. You become much more perfectionistic. Um, very legalistic and somewhat rigid because that's what you have to hold on to. If you bounce back and you sort of land in that profit section, you become bitter and critical, judgmental. It becomes more of the way that you see the world. But if you work through that wall with Jesus, him holding on to you tightly and you holding on to him tightly, I believe then you get to wisdom and your intimacy grows exponentially. So, um, when you get up against the wall, you can go to the next one. Um, you realize sometimes people in their well-meaning will say, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You know, come on, you can do it. Just have faith, just believe. It's all gonna be okay. But what they don't realize is sometimes when we've come up against that wall, our shoes have been blown off and we are on holy ground. There are no bootstraps. Sometimes we can't get out of bed. Sometimes it's really amazing if we get to work that day or that year. And we, have, we realize maybe for the first time in our whole lives, we have no control, that control is an illusion and we really liked that illusion, so it's really hard to let it go. Um, and then we're shattered. And Christians are often taught that they're not supposed to be shattered. That's not okay. So um, we're going to get into the scripture now, now that you've had that background, and we're going to go into Genesis 32. Um, and this is the story of Jacob's journey. And it's, um, I'm, I'm going to shorten the chapter for you um, because it's sort of long. 
But what I want you to pay attention to is when Jacob wrestles with God. All right, you ready? Okay, refresh your brain. You with me? Okay, we've already done a ton in this, in this service, so stay with me. Um, messengers came to Jacob and said, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. And that sounds very ominous to our friend Jacob at this point. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, the flocks and the herds and the camels, into two camps. He was thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then this camp that's left can run away and get away. And Jacob said, Oh, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, Oh, Lord, you said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and the faithfulness that you've shown your servant. For now, with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now going back, I have two whole camps. But please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers and all the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for their multitude. And he stayed there that night. Now, basically what he does now is he, he gets all of these gifts for his brother Esau, who's coming with his army of 400 men to meet him. And he sends messengers ahead. He tries to placate and flatter. And then we're going to skip to verse 22, if you're following. That same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. What is your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why do you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. All right. Jacob's wall was deeply personal, relational, generational, emotional, and familial, and it was a crash and burn scenario. I've read you part of it. Um, But some of the backstory is it was time to confront his history with his brother and his parents. Um, Jacob had been involved in a multi-generational situation of lying, favoritism, and strife between brothers. That was his relational model at that point. 
Um, and he had just found out that his brother had become powerful. You don't become powerful and then have 400 men coming after you. He assumed his brother still hated him because he had done him wrong in so many ways, you guys. Um, and he assumed that he would likely do harm. So he, he does exactly what he always does. He defaults to manipulation and strategy. And so you heard all that he does out of fear. Um, the safety of his family, his own life, his goods, and he hatches this escape plan. Um, he tries to appease him, manipulate him with flattery to preserve everything that was in his situation. So even while Jacob was trying to fix the problem with complimentary language and lavish gifts and shows of prosperity and humility underneath, he was having a faith crisis, and it comes out in his prayer. He starts to blame God. You told me to go home. You made me do this. So please fix it. And what's so interesting is what God does. So how does God answer Jacob's prayer with a theophany? A theophany is what it's a technical term, and it means Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. So there are many, many times it happens this is considered by researchers and commentators and scholars to be one of those. So it's interesting. God chooses to send Jesus. If it makes you more comfortable, we can say the angel, but usually the angel of the Lord is considered a theophany. Um, so God sends pre-New Testament Jesus to him. And so do you expect Jesus to like, give him the light of understanding or comfort or just a kind sit down by the fire, bro to bro, you know, all of those things. Um, but during that night of fear and dread and uncertainty and disappointment and anguish and anxiety and complete separation, what does Jesus do? He comes at him. You know, I wonder, I wonder what Jacob thought when, when, when he was walking toward him. Like, oh, relief. I'm so thankful. Thank you, God. You've answered my prayers. I don't know that he thought that. I just, I just wonder about these things. But instead, Jesus gets him in an embrace and probably just throws him to the ground. And then they start to wrestle. And they wrestle for hours. And maybe you felt that way sometime in your life that you started with this nice orientation and order and you had a good setting for your life and then there's this rising action and conflict and disorientation and disorder and he's wrestling. This is not a rescue. Didn't feel like it anyway. What the heck? And yet, this is exactly what God intended for Jacob on that dark night of his soul. So, it's so interesting. They could not have been physically closer on that night. They're wrestling, sinew to sinew, muscle to muscle, sweat to sweat. And I just think that if God had put words to that, he was saying, no, 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 I'm going to make you more tired. I'm going to actually give you physical pain, and you are going to be shattered, and there's going to be nothing that you can stand on except for me. Above all else, what God deemed Jacob needed was an encounter, 
not an explanation. He was, it's as if he was saying, feel me, literally wrestling you in this darkness. I'm not giving you answers. I'm colliding with you. Isn't that amazing? So it wasn't comfort. It wasn't a soft explanation. It was an explosive wrestling match. Have you felt that with the Lord? You are not alone. You're not the only one. So that dark night was Jacob's walls. Jacob's wall. I've had a few myself. Maybe you have too. Take a moment and think about it. Just process for just a moment. What have your walls been? My first one was a chronic disease, a disorder I still live with. Praise God. It started when I was 28, had radiation. I'm still here with you. So thankful. Then it was after I had Misha, miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage, and letting all those dreams blow up and fall aside. I'd always thought I'd be the one with the big house and all the kids streaming through. And then it was divorce. And all that went with that, what? And there were days when I'd be flat on the floor in my house and I would say, I cannot get up until you talk to me. That's how the shattering was. And it was holy ground. It was an invitation to greater intimacy. And what I learned was something has to die on the wall and something is remade through the wall. Let's talk about that for a minute. Something had to die on that wall. For me, it was a misunderstanding of God. I thought he would fix everything because I was a Christian. It was his daughter. It would all be okay, but it wasn't. So I had a misunderstanding of him. Maybe for you, it was an expectation or a way of life or physical trauma, a way of thinking, a way of relating. And God says, no more. It stops right here. And this is going to hurt, baby, but we're doing it. But something is always remade through the wall. Um, a new, more accurate understanding of God the Father. An understanding more of the Spirit. A sweeter understanding in relationship with Jesus. A new way of relating or thinking or living. A pathway opens to a new humility fresh fruit of the Spirit, a gentleness toward the broken or toward those who are different than you, a tenderness toward the living. And then Jacob does a beautiful thing, you guys. He refuses to let go. You saw that in the scripture. Wrestle and rage, but don't let go until he blesses you. And you may be holding on with all you have. Go ahead. So 
I want to ask you this question. How is God inviting you to be remade through your wall, through your crash, through, through where you just fell apart? Um, what we learn is that wrestling, this whole dark night of the soul thing, it's actually an essential part of worship and devotion. It's part of life with God. So are wounds and sweat and tears and delayed relief and no answers and fresh starts and the sun rising and new days. This is something that we can work to accept about the life of faith. So we struggle, we grieve, we feel loss, we suffer, we're disappointed, we fear, but those are all intimate parts of the life of devotion. And this new light goes off that it's not that you're bad, it's that this is all part of it. It all belongs. Okay. So what happens? God gives him a new name and a limp. Those are the gifts from his wall. I wonder, what are your gifts? He gave Jacob, which means um, deceiver or trickster, a new name. And it was Israel, which means he wrestles with God and with man and has prevailed. What a beautiful thing. And that's what the people of God were then called. How appropriate. We wrestle with the Lord, you guys. It's what we do. You're not crazy. You're not wrong. It's who we've been named. And it's fresh and it's new. It's part of it. And then a limp. You saw that, that he wounded Jacob on purpose. He has probably wounded almost everyone in this room on purpose. Why? Because he's mean? No. Because there's intimacy ahead of you. It's a holy ground. It's a new way. It's a new place. It's an invitation into depth. So that's where we go with this. We just go with a limp. And then we rise. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> we rise from this fire of being remade because that's what it feels like. It's all that dross on the inside, all the sin, all the crap in the garbage, it's burning. And yet we have this resurrection and that's where we use new words like reorientation, reorder, resolution, reintegration. But we're remade if we go through that wall. So... Next one, I love this. God gifts in storms too. Are you in a storm? I just want you to know in the name of Jesus, I just love you. I'm sorry for the storm and I'm not sorry for the storm. Hopefully it'll take you to new places, new depths, new beauties. Um, okay, last one, last big one. Um, one of the things that Jacob does is he names the place where he was. Did you catch that, Peniel? Um, when he names it, I think it's good that we name places where we fall apart. It just helps. The crazy years. Whatever. I don't know. But we start to learn that we've been taught incompletely. And so this is a filling out a, a greater part of maturity 
um, that new intimacy that we're seeking and follow along with me. I'm gonna do this quickly. So we've been taught that we can know God, but God is also a mystery. We've been taught that we become a Christian in a moment. Y'all, it takes a lifetime to figure it out and live it out. And then we've been taught that everything we need is in the Bible, but not everything we need for life is in the Bible. It's, it doesn't tell you where to live or who to marry or if and when to go to college, what your major should be, where to, where to do your job, should you be a partner with somebody. All those things are done in the spirit. So we've been taught that trust is primary, it's beautiful, it's necessary. But just like that amazingly gorgeous prayer that Brooke read, doubt takes us to new deep places. We've been taught that we should always be in church. We also need to be in the world, not just the natural beautiful world, but also the world that's a wreck. We need both. Um, God has an ideal that he set out in his scriptures. But he uses broken people in broken systems to remedy brokenness. We have been taught that our full satisfaction can be in our faith. But sometimes we were never taught that our faith is also very turbulent. We've been taught that we need to be in community. We also need solitude. We've been taught that God is so merciful but we've forgotten that he also judges. He judges sin and he's gonna root it out. We've been taught that we will all have an inner battle, but we also need to acknowledge that there's something that rages that is beyond what most of us see. And it's with angels and demons. And so we need to stay close to the Trinity. And then we affirm the truth, but Christians, we wrestle with the truth. And then the last one is we become a Christian and we're excited to be identified with Christ. And then we start to live it out and we think, well, what the heck does it really mean to be a Christian? And we wrestle. It's what we do and it's what our name says. So the last thing is a, a quick demonstration. Very quick. Um, in the scripture, it says, be perfect as your father is perfect. And the word for that is a word that starts with telos. And telos is a beautiful word. It's how we get telescope. If you're a science person, it's telomere, the end of your DNA that comes off every time your cells split. So by the time all your telomeres are gone, you die. So tell means end, full, complete, you're done. So this is a telescope the best way to understand what perfection in God's eyes is, is here. We, we extend it a length and we get a good picture. We extend it a further length and we get a better picture. We extend it fully so that it's its full extension and we see, we actually see clearly. This is the life of faith. This is the journey of faith. This is how far we go. We've got a long way, you guys. And this is what we do. We wrestle. And sometimes we feel like this. And we want to put the daggum telescope away. 
But then there's this extension and this intimacy that's so beautiful. And we start to see God more clearly. And we know and we trust that he sees us in all the mess. All right, last slide. Here you are. Your wiser self will begin to emerge. But you guys will have a limp. And that's okay. It actually makes you approachable, beautiful, humble, ready, loving, kind, merciful. And I think I just described Jesus, didn't I? So, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit.